and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast by the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Gavin Tolometti, joined by... Monica Molinaro. And this evening, we are joined by Nico Garoni from the Earth Science Department. How are you doing today? Very good. Very good. Oh, excellent. So, uh, uh, just a quick thing, just to get everyone uh, delved into this conversation, but what is it in Earth Science that you do? Like, are you a PhD or are you a master's student? I'm a PhD student. Okay, so what is it that you uh, are studying at the moment? I am studying, <coughs> excuse me, I am studying uh, carbonate melt in, from impacts of meteorites. Okay. So mm-hmm. when a meteorite hits the ground, it depends on what type of rock it's landing on. Uh, if it is a carbonate or sedimentary package, that's the ones that I'm, those are the ones that I'm looking at, those craters and those melts. Okay. Um, I feel like there's a lot to unpack in those two sentences alone. (laughs) Um, So can we start, I guess, why do you want to study this? Why is this important? Because in the science community or in the impact community, uh, there's a debate. It's not a grand debate or anything, but it is a debate nonetheless that uh, carbonates don't actually melt. They will just sort of decompose and release their CO2 because they are, well, calcite is... Uh, calcium and carbonate, which is CO3. Okay. So it releases CO2 and then leaves behind uh, lime, CaO, behind. And uh, that's pretty much what some people believe. And others will say, no, they do melt. So that's what I'm looking for. Okay. <laughs> and I guess with that then, say they do melt. What does that mean? I guess what are the implications of these? Uh, well, it, it kind of... Uh, sort of governs how much CO2 is being released into the atmosphere after impact. So environmental um, climate disruptions. So if you take the impact that killed the dinosaurs, for instance, there's kind of argument on how much CO2 was released then to create a global climate disruption. Uh, same thing goes for calcium sulfate. So sulfate released into the atmosphere will produce a cooling effect. CO2 will be a warming effect. So that's sort of the things that uh, that it would help with. Okay, interesting. I guess, how do you figure that out? Where do you sample that kind of I, stuff? I don't even know what to call it. How do you, <laughs> like, where do you even start? Well, th- with craters into carbonate target rock. So target rock is just whatever lithology was on the ground before it got hit. And so you'd, you'd search for the craters that were in sediments, and especially those bearing carbonates. And so you just look into the uh, okay, when a meteorite crashes into it, it produces a melt and a breccia, and sometimes those mix together, and sometimes they don't, and sometimes it's just melt, sometimes it's just breccia. Um, a breccia is a mix of broken up rock. Okay, great, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so in there, you would look for signs of melt. So um, silicates will melt, uh, will will be preserved a lot better. So if you can find them and you know there's other carbonates material around, you, then you can be like, okay, well, this area has been melted. You can look for the carbonates. And uh, is there a particular crater that you're looking at? Yeah, there are a couple craters that I'm actually looking at. And uh, the first one is the Chicxulub crater. I just mentioned it before about the one that killed the dinosaurs. That one's just off the shore or at the north shore of the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. And uh, 
that crater is under the surface, so you can't actually see it except for its outline from a ring of cenotes that uh, border it. Cenotes are just big karst features and hole, sinkholes in the ground that were uh, produced by the fracturing around the rim of the crater, letting in water and dissolving it away. And uh, so since then, there's just been some, some oil operations that have uh, drilled into the breccias and pulled out core. And as well as in 2016, there was a, um, a large ocean drilling project that, got, that went to a specific scientific location that they wanted to figure out um, the structure of the crater. And they pulled out core from there. So I got samples from that specific core. And then the second crater is the Houghton Crater on Devon Island in, North, in the Arctic, Canada. And uh, from there, it's a well-known carbonate crater, so I've got samples from there. And next on the list is Meteor Crater, also known as Behringer Crater in Arizona, also landed in carbonate material. Okay, well, I have a question flowing off of that then. Um, these craters, when you go and you say you're collecting samples, do you literally just show up and shovel a bit of dirt into a test tube? Like, how, how does this... <laughs> I realize it might be a bit of a ridiculous question, but how does this work? Do you have to do any digging? Like, how does this process work when it comes to collecting samples or understanding what exactly is going on? Well, if you go to the field, sometimes, yes, you literally just go pick up rocks. Wow. And in specific locations that you have mapped out prior. But uh, yeah, you just, if you don't have core, which in my case, I have core at the one and it's underground, so I can't go pick up rocks because it's, well, it's beneath the ocean. <laughs> you can't earth. just stick your arm in there and like pull no, it around. No, I'm not strong enough for that. <laughs> and, uh, but the one in the north, is, it's uh, exposed at the surface. I didn't actually go there. There's been samples being collected since the 90s. And so I'm using some of those for now. Um, but for my, the meteor crater, I will go pick up rocks and uh, I'll go look at the core that's already been drilled. And is, uh, are you hoping to, if possible, get to some of the other field sites other than Meteor Crater or is that? Well, at the moment, not this year. Houghton is, is not a possibility, but cross my fingers to go up there because the Arctic's cool. Yeah, I imagine the training it probably gets, takes to get up to the Arctic probably takes a lot of planning and... I would assume so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so when it comes to this carbonate, are these, can you only collect samples from areas that meteors have hit? Is that kind of the purpose of it? Or is it just for the purposes of your research or specifically examining these kinds of areas? Well, if we're looking at impact melts, then yeah, you need it to be impacted. For them By to a be meteor? Melt. Yeah. Or any or sort comet of... Or whatever, okay. but likely a meteor. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so with that then, what's the difference between a meteorite and a comet? Well, a meteorite, being a meteor or an asteroid, is a body, it's just a rocky body. It could be iron, it could be a rubble pile, uh, or anything in between. And a comet is a ball of ice and dust. And it's the one that leaves a nice streak across the sky being reflected by the sun in the background. It doesn't, you can see it without it actually penetrating the atmosphere, because it leaves, it... Uh, evaporates as it as it um, is in front of the sun right. ice okay so meteorites are like ugly comets <laughs> actually they're very pretty are they uh well it's <laughs> shooting stars oh true okay <laughs> i didn't think of them that and i guess if you cut them in half if they actually survive they're pretty cool too okay yeah do you have your own samples of a meteorite at all no oh <laughs> That would have been a cool part of the research as well. Yeah, but the ones that we were looking at, the, the ones that leave behind big craters, they usually just vaporize. So they don't really 
exist anymore. Okay. It's the small ones that don't, they just kind of land on the ground that you can go pick up. Okay. <laughs> Those okay. are the ones you can collect. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I guess with that, do you have to take weather conditions into account in terms of your sampling? Like if, I don't know, it's been raining for the last two weeks, is that going to end up affecting anything that you end up collecting versus somewhere that's been sunny for the last month and a bit? Well, for the samples, it doesn't affect the samples because they've been out there for millions of years. So they've been rained on, they've been snowed on, they've been turned into mountains and pummeled around through tectonics. But uh, for us, <laughs> it might be uh, concerning if there's a hurricane that comes through or a gale or any sort of large weather condition that blows away your tent or, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. I mean, I guess it can add to an interesting story when people ask, like, oh, how was field work this year? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, uh, one group lost their tent. Really? Oh, that's yeah. true, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, they also had a visit from some friendly northern bears as yeah. well. So. Some polar bears. Really? So th- there's lots of things to consider your own well-being. But the rocks will stay the same. They can survive a polar bear stepping on them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. How, do you have any of those kinds of crazy stories, I guess, from whatever an adverse weather event, an animal coming? Well, I haven't done the field work yet because I'm fairly fresh into PhD from starting last September. But uh, we'll find out uh, I, I won't be seeing polar bears because i won't be going to the arctic but some wild americans down in arizona maybe <laughs> yeah i mean to be honest they are quite wild down there <laughs> yeah <laughs> i don't know i've never been down to arizona no. so <laughs> well uh i would recommend a wide brim hat <laughs> uh but uh but quickly looking back at the melts that so you're saying you're trying to find the melts in these samples uh what is it that they would actually look like or is that still an open question at the moment so with carbonates they're different from uh, other minerals such as silicates so silicates will will produce an amorphous type glass so something not the same but similar to your window Uh, and in thin section they will just appear black when you cross the polars I'm not sure how familiar everyone will be with uh, microscopes but there's two polarizers and uh, when you cross them certain minerals will go black but anyways, uh, carbonates, they don't become amorphous anything. They just look like carbonates because they just don't have the same chemistry as silica or any of the other minerals that will form glasses. So they don't actually form a glass. So it's kind of hard to determine because visually you can't unless they have a textural aspect to them. If they mix with another glass, then you can kind of see, oh, that might actually be a melt. Let's test it further. Otherwise, geochemically, or just chemically speaking, that's kind of uh, the only way so far that we know that you can determine whether it's for sure a primary melt. Interesting. Um, I guess with that, how how did you end up getting into something like this? How does that all start? Yeah, well, (laughs) funny question, because I was never in planetary science. Um, I was actually over in University of Calgary doing a project on... uh, Beneath the, on carbonates beneath the oil sands, uh, diagenetic structural sort of thing, earth-related topics. Uh, and then I graduated and decided, uh, let's switch it up. Let's go to space. <laughs> let's be an explorer. <laughs> <laughs> In your own way. That's so interesting, though. Like, I guess, why space? Well, you know, they say final frontier. But I don't know. I guess in my mind it was, uh, I just, I've always been interested in, in historical explorers. You know, like uh, Francis Drake and uh, whatever his first name is, Vancouver, and all those people, James Cook, that sort of thing. So I thought, well, I can't 
see, I can't go discover a new land, but let's just, you know, no one knows a lot about space. And there's lots of discoveries over there that are fresh and new. And so I came here and ended up doing Earth stuff anyway. That kind of worked out. <laughs> but at least I get to learn about all the different uh, space topics through my colleagues and conferences and classes and stuff. So no regrets. Right. No, that's great. <laughs> I mean, you don't want any regrets when you're going to grad school and you're trying to figure out your topic. And I mean, who doesn't like space, really? I'm sure somebody. <laughs> well, then. <laughs> I don't appreciate At least one haters. person out there. There's got to be. <laughs> really? Oh, man. I hope not. Space is so great. I know. Going back to everything that you're doing, essentially, how long do you think this project is going to take? Like, how, how many samples do you need? I realize that I'm layering, like, five questions right now. But how many samples <laughs> do you need to collect? How long is this all going to take? What are you kind of hoping that you're going to get from this research? Um. It's a difficult question to answer for how many samples to take because uh, I was the samples were, I mean, they're already collected from Chicxulub. The, the core is already collected, so you kind of have to request them from the actual um, program people, the agency or whoever, the International Ocean Drilling Program people. So uh, it's, it's tough to say how many I can get from there, but ideally maybe 30 samples from there and then um, with Houghton we've got we've got thousands of samples already in storage so it, I mean I can just go on on tangents that are endless if I want to but preferably not because I want to graduate yeah, and I've seen, uh, I've seen that storage it's a lot it's a lot of boxes really? in that storage just labeled Houghton yeah so good luck going through that there's, <laughs> there's been samples being collected almost every year since 1999 so there's tons um, but I, I hope to not go more than like 50 and then with the next project there's core involved too so and you know it's limitless really how many samples you want to how you can collect but to keep it under four years you know well <laughs> <laughs> definitely yeah. got to keep it a little bit more efficient here yeah. with that then do you you know if you guys have been collecting samples since for the last 20 years at this point, is there a way, do you have to select samples from every year to see some sort of progression? Are you hoping to just look at recent samples, like within the last decade or so? Is there a process in doing that? Does it matter? Well, there are different rock types. So I'd narrow it down to those that may have carbonate melts. And I'd narrow it down to those that are hopefully not as altered as others because hydrothermal processes can destroy the rock and features that you're looking for. And so with that in mind, uh, specific rock types in the field that you'd be choosing it from. Okay. Okay. And I guess with that as well, I have another question. Do you have to get any sort of ethics clearance for any of this? Or can you just kind of go out and do your thing in the field? Uh, Well, no. I mean, you have to be prepared for whatever the field has to throw at you. So if you do go to the Arctic, you need your PAL, your gun license, and you need your (laughs) wilderness certification, first aid certification, that sort of thing. And... Some other trainings I probably don't know about. I mean, to go in the States, you just kind of go there because... You need your passport. <laughs> yeah, you need your passport. <laughs> exactly. And some sunscreen. That's pretty much... <laughs> and as Gavin said, a wide brim hat, I believe. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wide brim hat. And probably also, you have to be able to communicate with some Americans that may not understand why you're walking around looking at rocks and putting them down and bagging some. Yeah. Tourists. Yeah. Someone will most likely ask if you're looking for gold. Since I am going to Meteor <laughs> Crater, that's a very big tourist a- attraction. Right. Uh, many people will know about it, and lots of people will be there, so they'll be wondering what, 
<laughs> exactly. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and if it's a big tourist attraction, then, okay, first off, do they charge admission to get into these kinds of places? I've, I've never been there. They do. So. They do. They do. So then if you're doing research in the area, do you have to pay admission and then go do research? Well, there's usually um, permits that you'd have to get. Like you'd have to get permission okay. to do the research. I, mean, I don't know what meteor crater, but you do have to get permission to go to the Arctic and use their water and uh, whatever other things that you have to do. Okay. So that's as far as that would go, I guess. Yeah, I think Meteor Crater, if you're doing research and you have a permit, you don't have to pay admission. I think that's only for tourists that have to pay that. You just have to go through the paper process of allowing yourself to walk on the grounds so that the ranges are okay with it. Because since, mon- since it's a tourist destination and it's a national landmark in the States, there are some boundaries. But as far as I know, it's not too difficult if you know the right people as well. Oh, so it's a connections game. Well, I'm pretty sure. Well, we know the right people, so we'll <laughs> yeah. be fine. We're Nepotism good. in rocks. <laughs> um, okay, and I guess with that then, with the permits that you have to get, these are all things that you have to do prior to going out to the field. Like you would have to do them while you're at home. And then is there an approval process for these permits, I'm assuming? Yeah. You need them so many weeks with, in advance or something? I don't know sort? about all of them, but some of them are definitely, they need, well, some of them actually get get accepted that as you're on your way and that's fairly stressful for some supervisors and students uh, I have heard of uh, definitely from actually from my prior supervisor that uh, they were on the airplane waiting for, for their uh, permit to use the water oh my god <laughs> it sounds pretty stressful I would it, not like that. and he gave it in he gave his submission in six months ago before the trip so you don't even know how long it's going to take to get these permits back or well, sometimes them. you don't even know if you're going to go so then how do you plan anything? You just you have just, to roll with it. Exactly. <laughs> you just roll the dice and I mean, plan I, it as you would if I'm, you had them. Yeah, I'm planning field work now, and if something goes wrong, it's like, well, I'm going to have to adapt to this. <laughs> oh, my God. Car breaks down. Well, we just got to keep going. Sample tools missing. Nope, keep going. Yep. <laughs> playing Dig with your mi- hands. Yep. Missed with a flight. Well, you're paying for a new flight. You know? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Okay, so there's... No rhyme and reason to it. Like there's well, there is what like what planning can you get done beforehand? I guess for me, I'm like if I need plan A to Z, what can I plan beforehand? Are there what can you plan beforehand other than like what clothes you're bringing, how what to pack in your suitcase? Just plan everything and hope for the best. Hope for the best. Oh my god. Yeah, it's I mean like the Arctic is an exception because it's so tricky to get up there that there's so much that needs to be done well in advance and then for there that you just kind of have to hope for the weather does doesn't uh yeah get really bad because some planes as far as i know won't go if the weather's bad and if you're out there and you need to get picked up but the weather gets bad they say we cannot come get you until the weather's clear so then you have to make sure you have enough food and water but i think you always pack for like an extra couple weeks for worse comes to worse weeks it well we I'm assuming that you, if you did go, it would be in the summer, not the winter. Yeah, it's the summer. You don't go in the winter to the Arctic. Yeah, so summer is <laughs> not, not as far. I've been told stories, but summer is not that bad. But bad weather always happens because it's that far north. So you can never predict what's going to happen. Yeah, it's it's snowed on people. Wow. <laughs> I guess I'm just trying to process all of this right now and the fact that there's not a lot that you can plan for. Like, what happens if you go and you don't get your permits? Is that like you're you're just there for a trip? Well, you might not go like if you don't get your permits it's just well Well, depending on how far in advance 
Depending on which plane you're on, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it probably depends on where you're going as well. Yeah. I think, because some permits, like, just to enter the site, you don't, yeah, I guess if you don't have that, like, nope. Yeah. There's no point going. <laughs> we can't even get there. Well, I've never actually planned an excursion quite as extensive as that. So, um, <laughs> I know my brain is like going into overdrive right now, thinking about all the things that you need to plan. And I was about to ask you, like, are these things that you have taken into account? <laughs> oh, like, no, I'm going to Arizona, so I'm just gonna hop on a plane and walk out into the nice <laughs> on a plane, 110 <laughs> degree weather. And <laughs> it sounds so lovely, it just sounds like a regular excursion. Yeah, sometimes I guess if it goes off without a hitch, it could be. I mean, worst comes worse. Oh, we've to end early, mountains are not that far. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. So there's a lot of factors <laughs> that you need to take into account when you go and do something like this, I guess. Is there anything that you're hoping ends up coming out at the end of the day from all of this? Like research-wise? Yeah. Or? Like results-wise? Well, obviously, good weather, no bear attacks, your tent oh, not yes. flying away. Well, of course, all that stuff. <laughs> all those fun things. <laughs> um, I mean, I think I'll be in a hotel in Arizona, so that's not going to be a problem. <laughs> not for bears, definitely not. Unless no. a bear can like scale your hotel. <laughs> yeah, but for research-wise, yeah, I, I would I would hope to be able to find um, good, significant data for the the, the debate that I had mentioned earlier about carbonate melts or carbonates melting. So, um, and to be able to classify different, I hadn't gone into this at all, but different shock of the carbonates because they may not have melted, but they've still experienced a great amount of pressure. So there's different levels of pressure in that so um yeah as long as i get results that are publishable and exciting then i'm happy right is there any set of results that the way i'm kind of thinking about this it sounds like any results are good results because they're results well scientifically yeah any results are good results but if you do a lot of research and you basically find that your thesis is garbage <laughs> then, <laughs> I think we all feel that way, like, regardless. Yeah. <laughs> so. But, I mean, you can still say, well, I mean, it's the opposite of what I said before. So, there you go. <laughs> At least there's one way or the other to the debate. There's a yes and a no, so you could still publish to the no. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, you can still contribute to an argument one way or another, even if your results aren't necessarily what you intended or what you wanted. Oh, exactly. It's all good. You're just still hoping for the good one, the better one. Yeah. <laughs> Just make the best out of a worse situation. Exactly. <laughs> okay. And what to use the better one in this scenario? Ooh. Oh, melt. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I thought there was going to be yes, some ma'am. contemplation in that. <laughs> so I was like, oh, Well, okay. okay. So if there wasn't any melt, I would love for there to be evidence for why. Did they decompose and release CO2? If so, I need evidence telling me that they did. If I just don't find melt and don't find any evidence, like any... Um, so if you if you decompose... Uh, dolomite, then you may have periclase behind, which is an MGO, uh, magnesium oxide. And if you um, <laughs> decompose calcite, it's it's lime, uh, calcium oxide. But unfortunately, those are very reactive and they can turn right back into calcite. So that tells me nothing. So if there's just nothing left behind, then that's disappointing. If there's something to tell me yes or no definitively, then I'll be happy. Fingers crossed that there'll be something. Of course. <laughs> in a sample, yeah. I think everyone hopes, fingers crossed, that what they're looking for is in the samples that they're looking at. Yeah. I mean, I, I already think I found stuff. I just need to analyze it further. All I've seen it, all I've done is look through the microscope and seen visual uh, through the thin sections that I actually want to probe further. So until then, I don't know if it's for sure if it's melt or not, but it looks like it. Which is promising. Yeah. 
and exciting. Do you find that that's motivating you to keep going? Like it's getting you excited about what you may end up finding? Oh, every eureka moment is always exciting. <laughs> you know, you have those where you, you go so long not knowing what is going on. You have no idea what these samples are telling you. And all of a sudden something just clicks. Those are fun. I like those. It's a pretty great <laughs> moment. <laughs> Especially if there's just several. <laughs> several. Oh, my gosh. I think we can only hope for several yeah. in the span of a PhD. I don't know. I think with that one, though, you just think about why only one? What's so special about this one that actually clicked with what I'm looking for? Yeah. <laughs> but I think that's another project on its own. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, push that aside. <laughs> Side project. Oh, yeah. Oh, and that's also another thing. If you get these eureka moments, but it has nothing to do with your project. Yeah, like Gavin said, if you don't want to be here for seven years, then you got to push those away and just not think about them. Oh, that's true, too. Well, you can get it done for you. just have to sacrifice a lot of mental integrity. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need to think. <laughs> yeah. I'll just do things. <laughs> do things. Exactly. Well, and uh, I guess the part of it, too, is if it's a eureka moment and you're excited about it, it's a matter of whether or not you want to continue to pursue that because that's your eureka moment. True. But don't you want a degree? I mean, <laughs> no, I understand. Yes, you, you're always wanting to pursue scientific progression, right? So it's hard to leave those things behind if you have to. But if you don't have to, then pursue it. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And uh, just one quick thing before we have to end. Um, since like, you've, had, you've done a master's before, so you've felt the transition from undergrad to grad school. But have you felt anything different from grad transitioning from like a master's to your PhD? Um, no. <laughs> no? <laughs> well, then. I mean, that's an answer, yeah. I guess, like, yep, business as usual, I guess. It's just, uh, like, I, I went, I had about a month, less than a month off before I moved here to do my PhD after my master's, and... Oh, just went right back into it. Yeah. Nothing's really that different. I mean, I've heard a lot of different stories from other people, so if you're taking this for advice for yourself, maybe don't listen to me. <laughs> It's It can be a nice, easy transition, or it could be a brick wall, as I've heard from others. I'm just going to get through that brick wall. <laughs> yeah. Just make sure you're going fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> or that you're very good at climbing. Yeah. <laughs> One or the other. I prefer just blasting through it. Like a meteorite, maybe? <laughs> or the juggernaut. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Which one's more effective? <laughs> True. Uh. But um, th I think we're just at the end of our episode. So um, thank you very much for coming on the show today, uh, Nico. You're welcome. Uh, to, this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast by the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I have been uh, your host, Gavin Tolometti, and... I'm Monica Molinero. And we have been talking with Nico Garoni. We are live at 6 p.m. on CHRW at 94.9 every Tuesday. If you would like to download our podcast, you can find us on Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, Podbean, and wherever else you find your podcast. If you would like to know more about the show or to maybe come on to the show as a guest, you can contact us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. And if you would like to follow us for more information behind the scenes and future episodes, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at gradcastradio. Thank you for listening and have a good night. The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.